1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul begins and he writes saying, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Isn't it remarkable that Paul knew that he was following Jesus? So he did not hesitate to tell the Corinthian Christians to imitate his walk as he walked with the Lord. Paul was a wise man. He knew that the Corinthian Christians, he knew that every Christian needed examples. You're aware of that, aren't you? That Christians need examples. And Paul was willing to say, I'll be your example. Go ahead and look at me as I follow Jesus Christ. No, Paul was simply doing what he told Timothy to be and to do. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to his young associate, be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Be an example. Now, I think it's remarkable just how few people today are really willing to say what Paul said. You know, instead, because of so much compromise and ungodliness in the church, we are so busy telling other people, don't look at me, just look at Jesus that we don't have much of a walk for people to look at and to say, be an example. Now, it is true that ultimately, we must all look to Jesus. Isn't that true? And we're not to put our faith, we're not to put our trust in any man, in any woman, as godly as they might seem to be. But, each and every one of us should be able to say what Paul says in verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Jesus. Now, I'll be straight with you. It's a little bit tough to know if what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, connects to what has gone before or to what is coming up afterwards. You could call it either way. Most people think that Paul is wrapping up the thought in verse 1 of chapter 11 that he concluded with in verse 10 of chapter, and verse 32 of chapter 10. In verse 33, I should say, of chapter 10, he says, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, uh, that they may be saved. Paul's just saying, look, follow my example. And we get the feeling he's just uh, emphasizing that point in chapter 11, verse 1. By the way, this might be a good way to bring up the idea that, are we all aware here that the chapter divisions in the Bible are not in and of themselves inspired of God? They're not. And sometimes the people who made the chapter divisions uh, didn't really get it right. It's probable that 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 should actually be 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 34. And the new chapter should begin at verse 2. Now, it is possible that Paul is connecting it with what follows because he was an example in those things too. I mean, Paul was an example in both of the things that he's talking about, so it's really not important if it's connected with what goes before, what went after. It's, that's not so important. Uh, but it is important for us to realize that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions in and of themselves are not inspired of God. You know, the Apostle John didn't sit around and say, you know, there's just some ring about John 3.16. I got to think up a good one for that one. You know, it didn't work like that, of course. They just wrote out the, the letters, and it was much later that they were divided in chapter and verse. So, Paul was an example in both cases, but in verse 2, he begins to get into something. One more thing I need to mention about verse 1 that is very important. Did you notice those words that, that Paul wrote? Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now, Paul knew that he was an example, and I believe that Paul knew he was a good example at that. At the same time, Paul also knew that it was not Paul in and of himself that was a worthy example, but it was 
Paul, the follower of Jesus Christ, who was the worthy example. You see, this sort of sets a limit and a direction on the way that we imitate others. When we say, just as I also imitate Christ, it has the idea of, you follow me as much as you see me following Jesus. You know, if you were to tag along with me day in and day out, I mean, I don't know how uh, some of you might perceive me. Maybe you think because I stand in front of people and teach the Bible that I'm particularly holy and, you know, have a righteousness above all others and something. Those of you who know me much better know that that's not the case. But, you know, the idea is, is that if anybody were to take a look at my life, I should be able to say the same thing as Paul. In those things that you see me following Jesus in, that's what you should imitate me in. There's not going to be absolutely everything in my life that conforms to that standard. But insofar as you do see me following Jesus, you follow me in those things. Now, coming on to verse 2, where Paul brings up the big issue here of, well, basically, uh, men and women in the worship service. Let's see here. Verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, I think it's very interesting how Paul begins with verse 2 there, because uh, I think, as he is uh, so often in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul is just kind of flat out being sarcastic. He's really, really getting sarcastic with him. I could just see Paul face to face saying, Now I praise you, brethren, because you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now ask yourself a question based on what you know before on the church of Corinth. Did they do those things? Did they remember Paul in all things? Oh, We just want to do what would please Paul. No way. I mean, they were in his face all the time. And were they saying, oh, the traditions that Paul delivered to us, wow, we've got to keep those. No, Paul's being sarcastic with them. He's trying to shame them into obedience and say, listen, you know, to expose their own hypocrisy and and their ideas there. Now, um, there is a a phrase there in verse 2 that's sort of frightening to some people, and you probably know what I'm talking about there. It's, you keep the traditions, Now, for many people, tradition, that's a dirty word. You know, it's kind of the T word, traditions. Oh, no, Paul's putting traditions upon the church. And and what's that? It's a scary phrase to many Christians. But they think that, that it's talking about Christians being bound by ancient, outdated traditions in their conduct and worship. As if all we should be singing is uh, hymns from the 18th century, right? Because that's traditional and, you know, that's what we should be doing here together. And God forbid that a, a pastor would stand before uh, a, a group of people to preach without clerical robes or, or long pants or even socks for that matter. And, uh, you know, you just kind of say, what, is this what we're talking about, keeping the traditions? Well, no, not at all. Friends, the traditions that Paul delivered to the Corinthian Christians were simply the teachings and the practices of the apostles received from Jesus. He wasn't talking about traditions like, you know, how many songs you sing before you do the message or how to wrap up your service or just sort of external things like that. He was talking about the doctrines and the practices taught by Jesus, communicated by the apostles. Paul was not talking about ceremonies and rituals, but about basic teaching and doctrine. And those were the traditions that they were supposed to be keeping, but he sarcastically points out that they weren't doing it at all. Now, verse 3 is a very important verse because it lays down a groundwork after Paul sort of shames them into giving uh, him their attention. Verse 3 lays down a very important principle for everything else Paul's going to say in the part of the chapter we're going to consider this evening. He says, and let's look at it again closely. 
But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. What Paul is communicating here is the principle of headship. He's setting out a foundation for his teaching in the rest of the chapter. Simply put, Paul makes it clear that God has established principles of order, authority, and accountability. And it all kind of focuses on this word head. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. The head of Christ is God. What does he mean by head? Well, some people have gone through and they consider that this word head means nothing more than source. In other words, the source of every man is Christ, the source of every woman is man, and the source of Christ is God. Well, this Greek word that's translated head for us, it can mean source, just as we might speak of the head of a river or the headwaters of a river. That's the source of the river, where the river flows forth from. It's true that the word can mean a source, but obviously Paul means much more than that. Paul is not just saying that man came from Jesus, woman came from man, and Jesus came from God. Though that simple understanding is true, Paul's meaning and the Holy Spirit's meaning is much deeper here because in the biblical thinking, a source has inherent authority. Why does a parent have authority over the child? Because the parent is the source of that child. Why does a, uh, a master, in a sense, have an authority over the, the servant or the slave? Because the servant and the slave, he owes his source, so to speak, as far as his position in the family and the household, to the master. If something has come from me, there is some appropriate authority that I have over that which has come from me. So, yes, the idea of source is there, but it's much, much bigger than that. I don't want you to think of the word source when we use this word head here. I want you to think of the idea of headship and authority. It means to have the appropriate responsibility to lead and the matching accountability. It is right and appropriate to submit to someone who is your head. It's just saying they're in appropriate authority over me and it's right that I submit to them. That's what a head is. Now, with this understanding, we see Paul describing three headship relationships in verse 3. Did you notice this? Let's look at the first one. The head of every man is Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ has rightful authority over every man. And every man should submit to Christ. The head of woman is man. Now, I want you to notice Paul is phrasing this carefully by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He does not say the head of every woman is every man, though he said the head of every man is Christ. Because Paul nowhere would teach that in a general sense, every woman is to be submitted to every man. The Bible teaches the idea of male headship in two institutions, in the home and in the church. Outside of those two institutions, the Bible doesn't teach male headship. But in those two institutions, it does. So Paul is careful to not say the head of every woman is every man. And the, but he does say the head of woman is man. There is a rightful place of authority that men have over women 
just as there is a rightful place of authority that Jesus Christ has over man. And notice the third analogy he builds on in verse 3. The head of Christ is God. Now when he says the head of Christ is God, he means God the Father. Jesus Christ is under the rightful authority of God the Father. The eternal Son of God is uh, under the rightful authority of the eternal Father. That's the simple understanding of this. Therefore, I think when Paul talks about headship, and let me just start laying it right down here on the road, folks. I can, you know, dance around this all night, but it's time just to talk very straightforwardly about it. Paul's going to talk about the need for women to recognize headship of men in the church and in the home. And when women in the church have the opportunity to display headship, they really have two options to show in their attitude towards their head. Now, I want you to think about this. There is the way that men respond to the rightful authority of Jesus Christ. Now, how do men respond to the rightful authority of Jesus Christ? Do we say, oh, Jesus, let me just submit to you all day long? Or is it a submission that needs to be earned and battled and the Lord has to work on us all the time? A lot of times kick it out of us, screaming and dragging, right? Now, I'm not just talking about men, I'm talking about mankind, right? I mean, when it comes to the kind of attitude men have towards Christ... We show a rebelliousness that must be won over by Jesus Christ. That's the kind of attitude a woman can show in, in regard to her head in the church, in the sphere of the church and in the home. Or she can show the attitude that Jesus shows towards his father, which is a simple loving submission as an equal. That's their choice. Now, we could argue all day long whether or not it's fair, whether or not it's right, whether or not God knew what he was doing when he said that uh, uh, the man is to be the head of the home and there's to be male headship in the church. But the fact of the matter is just that the scriptures simply declare this. And uh, I'll put a challenge right out to the ladies right away, and I'll just give you a little preemptive warning. This is going to be a very challenging evening for the ladies. Guys, don't you start rejoicing too much. I hope the Lord has plenty here to convict you too. But ladies, I mean, it's just a simple question to you. How are you going to respond to the principle of headship in the church and in the home? Are you going to respond to it like men respond to Jesus and show a rebellion that must be won over? Or are you going to respond to it like Jesus shows to the Father and show a loving submission? See, I'm here to tell you that the idea of headship and authority is a very important idea to God. This is not just some little peripheral issue. It's a very important idea to God because in his great plan for the ages, one great thing that God looks for from man is a voluntary submission. This is what Jesus showed in his life over and over again, that he was totally submitted to God the Father. And this is what exactly God looks for in both men and women. Ladies, don't think for a moment that God just expects this voluntary submission from you. He expects it from men as well, just in a different sphere, just in a different expression. But God expects a voluntary submission from every human being. Now, I think it's essential for us to understand in this context that, and listen to these words carefully, being under authority does not equal inferiority. I'll say that again. 
Being under authority does not equal inferiority. Now, there are some men who think that. You know, God's called me to be the head of this home woman. Or in the church, you know, yeah, God wants us men to lead. And they assume it's because they are superior and the women are inferior. What a jerk. Come on, man. That's not it at all. Or other times, maybe women get that idea in their mind. Oh, the reason why God wants me to submit is because I'm inferior. Not at all, ladies. Consider, again, the picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus was totally under the authority of his Father. Jesus said things like, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I mean, that's wild. Jesus was totally submitted to the authority of his Father, yet he is equally God. When God calls women in the church to recognize the headship of men, it's not because women are unequal, it's not because they are inferior, but because there is a God-ordained order of authority to be respected. So, Paul lays out the principle. There is an order of authority to be respected. Now he's going to talk about how it works out in the church. Look at verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying... Having his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head was shaved. But if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Now because of the order of authority that God has declared in verse 3... It is inappropriate for men to pray under a head covering, and it's inappropriate for women to pray without a head covering. Now again, let's understand something very important here. The idea of a head covering was important in this and in many other ancient cultures. To wear the head covering, or as it is in some translations, a veil, but actually don't think of a veil. When we use the, the, the word veil, we think of something that covers the face. The kind of garment, and this is well illustrated by ancient artwork where they show women wearing the kind of garments that they're talking about here. The kind of thing spoken of here in the ancient world was much more like a scarf that would go around and cover a woman's head. It was not something that would cover her face. Now, in some very strict, for example, Islamic countries today, women are required to wear a veil that covers their face. That is not the idea being spoken of here. It's talking about something that would cover a woman's head. Now, to wear this head covering was a public symbol of being under the authority and the protection of another person. That's what it said. It said, I am under the authority, I am under the protection of somebody else. And that's why a godly woman, a ladylike woman, would always wear a head covering. One commentator says, it was a custom, both among the Greeks and the Romans, and among the Jews an express law that no woman should be seen outside without a veil. This was and is a common custom throughout all the East, and none but public prostitutes go without a head covering. In the Corinthian culture, if you went around without a head covering, you were saying, 
I'm not under the authority or protection of anybody. Come by me. That's what you were saying. I'm up for grabs. That is why prostitutes didn't wear head coverings. So, for a man to pray or prophesy having his head covered was for a man to say, okay, here it is in a church service. And when he says pray or prophesy, he has the idea of uh, leading the service, being up on the platform, so to speak, even though they probably wouldn't have a platform, but being one of the men who would lead the service. He's saying for one of those men to get up there and to pray or prophesy with his head covered, what was he saying? He was saying, I am not in authority here. I am under the authority of others. But God has established, go back to verse 3, that the head of woman is man. Because God has established that, it would be dishonoring to Jesus for a man to say this with the wearing of a head covering. It was inappropriate for a man to do that. Now, this was an important principle for Paul to bring out. Especially because in Jewish culture, men did wear a head covering. But in Christian culture, especially in the city of Corinth, where this would have been unacceptable, an unacceptable saying that I'm not under authority, or I'm inappropriately under authority, that's why men were not to wear this head covering. Now, on the same principle, look at verse 5, a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered is saying, I am not under authority here. If a woman comes up to uh, pray at the service or to share a word of encouragement or something, or she's just there at the church service and she is not wearing the head covering, she is declaring to everybody there, I'm not under anybody's authority. I'm not under anybody's protection. And because God has established that the head of woman is man, it would be dishonoring to men for women to say this with the refusal to wear a head covering. There's a few interesting things to notice here. If you notice here in verse 5, when he talks about a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, Paul is seeming to say by implication that if a woman does demonstrate that she's under proper authority, it's fine for her to pray or prophesy in the church service. In other words, it's not so much saying, oh, you know, icky women, they've got cooties, spiritual cooties, and they can't, you know, do anything in a church service. More so the idea is, is that the integrity of male authority and headship must be respected in the church, and as long as women minister within that sphere, praise the Lord. But what if they don't minister under male authority? What if they decide that they're going to start proclaiming either subtly or, or uh, just right out front that we're not under anybody's authority? Well, look at what Paul says here in verse 6. Uh, then it's one and the same as if her head was shaved. If a woman refuses to demonstrate being under authority, she may as well be shaved of her hair. Now, it's a little clear to, unclear to understand exactly what the close cropping or shaving of a woman's hair meant in Corinthian culture because it meant several different things in several different cultures. But let me just put this, none of it was good. In some cultures, it meant you were a lesbian. In some cultures, it meant that you were a prostitute. In some cultures, it meant that you were an adulteress. In none of them did it mean anything good. Basically, the idea Paul is saying is if you're going to disgrace yourself... By going into the church and shouting out to everybody by your refusal to wear a head covering, I'm not under anybody's authority, then Paul says, why don't you just carry that disgrace all the way and shave your hair? Just, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Go all the way, he's saying. 
Now, probably what the problem was was that among the Corinthian Christians, there were probably certain spiritual, so to speak, women who declared that since Jesus, they didn't need to demonstrate with any kind of head covering that they were under anybody's authority. Hey, man, I'm free in Jesus. I don't need to demonstrate that I'm under authority. I'm just under Jesus. I'm not under anybody else. And in in essence, Paul says, listen, if you're going to forsake your head covering, go all the way and shave your head. Identify yourself with the women of the world in all of their shame. Now, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand what I'm telling you here this evening? I'm telling you that Paul says, that in the church, and then also by, uh, by extension, we could talk about this in other contexts, also in the home, women are unto, to be under male authority. Why, Paul? Why? Now, I'll tell you the reason why a lot of people would like to say. A lot of people would like to say, <laughs> you know, it was because Paul was a male chauvinist pig. And, uh, you know, he just didn't know, and he just had this bias towards women, and, you know, we live in a much more enlightened age, and so we can forget about all that. Other people would say, well, no, no, Paul had to do that, because, you see, those women, they couldn't go to seminary. And everybody knows that's where you really get trained for the ministry, is in seminary. And uh, if these women could go to seminary like they can today, then they would be fully equipped for ministry just as much as the men, and then Paul wouldn't have any problem. It was that the women weren't educated. And they say, no, 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 the problem was, was it was just a cultural thing in the Corinthian church, but we don't have those cultural hang-ups now, so we don't have to observe this. Well, why don't we let the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell us why? Instead of making up all these absurd and fanciful reasons why, let's let Paul tell us why. Well, I would just say the first reason stated, well, he's already mentioned in verse 3, right? The head of woman is man. God has established an order of authority, the principle of male headship, both in the church and in the home, period. But he goes on and gives more reasons. Look at verse 7. For man, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. All right? Why, Paul? Why? Well, number one, because, he says, he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Friends, I've got to say, uh, Paul's first reason here is the simple order of creation. God created Adam first, and God gave Adam responsibility over Eve. That's why. That's how God set it up from the beginning. Who was the head of the home with Adam and Eve? Adam. That's how God set it up. That was God's order of authority from the very beginning. Now, since one reason for male headship is the order and the manner in which God created man and woman, something that was present before the fall. This passage makes it clear that both before and after the fall, God has ordained that there be a difference in the roles between genders, even in the church. Friends, difference in gender roles in the church and in the home are not a result of the fall. That's where a lot of Christians have gotten mixed up on this. They say, well, you see, the reason why uh, men were to be in charge or male authority or male headship 
That was just because of the fall. And that was because of the curse. And now Jesus has redeemed us from the curse and we're free from all the effects of the fall. So now there shouldn't be any difference anymore. No, male headship came before the fall. God created Adam before Eve, before they ever sinned. So because these differences are not the result of the fall, they are not erased by our new life in Jesus. Now I have to say that Paul uses a difficult phrase. It's difficult for me to understand in verse 7, where he says that he, meaning the man, is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. I have to say it's a little hard for me to figure out how men are the glory of God, and it's also a little hard for me to figure out how uh, women are the glory of men, since most women I know are a lot more glorious than the men I know. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know, I don't get it, but I think what Paul's getting at here is, well, let me read you some commentators. Trapp says, either because he may glory in her if she be good, or because she is to honor him and give glory to him. Adam Clark says this, As the man is among the creatures, the representative of the glory and perfections of God, so that the fear of him and the dread of him are in every animal, so the woman is in the house and the family, the representative of the power and the authority of the man. Well, I think that's uh, what exactly Paul is getting at here. Man, meaning men, the, the male gender, is God's primary representative of authority and power on this earth. Woman is the representative of man's authority and power in the home. And so that's how God has ordained it. Now, there's another very important phrase here that we need to notice in verse 9. Actually, verse 8 and 9 taken together. He says, For man is not from woman, but woman from man, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Friends, can I just tell you that you should take a close look at that. And Ladies, I certainly don't mean this to to hammer anybody or to drive this into the ground, but I think that this is a, a place where the teaching, might I say the clear teaching of the Bible, is so contrary to the spirit of our age that it just needs to be studied here and, and understood. Simply put, this is what Paul is saying. Adam was not created for Eve, but Eve was created for Adam. And this principle applies to every Adam and every Eve throughout history. Friends, let me put it to you this way. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 declares God's intention in creating Eve. This was God's intention, his plan. Okay, I got a plan. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I will make him, meaning Adam, I will make Adam a helper comparable to him. Eve was created to be a helper to Adam. Meaning that Adam was head over Eve. And she was called to share in and help bring about his vision, and agenda. Friends, Eve was not there to have uh, Adam as her primary helper, and the family function or role or goal or agenda was going to be set by Eve, and it was Adam's job to help her bring it about. It was Adam's job 
to be the leader, the head of the home. And it was Eve's job to be that helper suitable for him. Let me show you another place in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22 says that God brought her to the man. Friends, Adam was not brought to Eve. Eve was brought to Adam, her head. Now again, I understand that this is an idea offensive to the spirit of our age, but the Bible in this passage clearly teaches in regard to the church and the home that man was not made for the benefit of woman, but woman was made for the benefit of man. For the man here signifies to serve and to help the man. Now, uh, of course, this could be taken in a terrible way by some men, couldn't it? I can see men thinking right now in their hearts, say, you know what? When my wife asked me to pick up my dirty socks, I knew that wasn't from God. <laughs> well, you know what? Um, obviously, because you laugh, you just understand how ridiculous that is, isn't it? Friends, of course, any man who's a godly man any man who has the heart and love of Jesus Christ towards his spouse is going to be, want to be there to nourish her and to cherish her and to build her up and to strengthen her. And many times that will mean very practical things. Yes, husband, take out the trash. Clear out the dishwasher. Help your wife around the house. Be a helper to your wife. But wives, let me say this. God has given your husband the vision, and the agenda for your home. And if you've been trying to seize that, if you desire to play the tune that your family marches to or dances to, then you don't have the right kind of thinking towards your marriage. Might I say that this applies also, and Paul's most particular point is in the church. Women are not to be setting the agenda for the church. God bless how God uses women. Ladies and gentlemen, if the women in our church were to stop serving tomorrow, the, church, the ministry of this church would grind to a halt. But without reservation, I say that women are not in places of authoritative leadership in our church, and I mean being on the board of elders or being on pastoral staff, because that's what God has ordained. That in a headship relationship, it's the... Uh, job of the head to set the vision, to set the agenda, and it's the job of the person who is under the headship of that person to help them and to support them and to see that vision come to pass. Think of it in the same terms because God applies the same principle to the employer-employee relationship. Let's say your employer comes along and says, well, you know, this is how we're going to do it, this and this and this, and you just kind of either say vocally or in your own heart, no, forget that. But you recognize in your heart of hearts, your boss has the right to tell you how the job should be done. And you know what? Even if he's wrong, you should do it the way he says and let it be wrong and show it, and then maybe he'll figure it out. But the bottom line is you're there to work for your boss, and that's it. You're not. Now, not to say that, you know, the husband's the boss and this and that, but hey, the bottom line is simply this. The same principle of a headship applies. Friends, it's simply put. And I'll say it again, even though, again, it's, a, it's an idea very offensive to the spirit of our age. That man was not made for the benefit of woman, but woman for the benefit of man. Now, I can perhaps hear a, a woman responding to this, saying, 
Pastor David, if that's the way it's supposed to be, then I honestly don't think I can ever be fulfilled in that. I don't think I can ever be fulfilled being in that kind of relationship. Because I'm no dummy. I'm a competent person. Honestly said, in a lot of areas, I'm more competent than my husband in managing things or this or that. And might I say, you're probably right. And so, Pastor David, I I just don't think that this works. It's going to leave me terribly unfulfilled. What do I do about that? Well, let me suggest a few things. First of all, if you're a single woman and you really believe that, then can I just say a simple word to you? Don't get married. Don't. I mean, if you're not really ready to submit to the headship of a man and do that, then you shouldn't get married. Don't get married until you're ready to submit to, the, to somebody's headship, because that's what a biblical marriage is about. And say, well, thanks, Pastor David. I wish you would have told me that, you know, five years ago or ten years ago or whatever. What about the situation I'm in? Might I say that I would suggest to you that you give your whole heart to doing what the Bible says you should do and see if God doesn't make that fulfilling in your life. I would suggest to you that maybe the reason why being in charge seems so fulfilling to you is that more than you know and more than you perhaps understand, you've been conditioned by the spirit of the world that has told you you cannot be fulfilled unless you are in charge. That's the only way you will ever be fulfilled. And consciously or unconsciously, you've bought into it. And I don't blame you for buying into it. It's been hammered into you since you were a little girl. Friends, might I suggest to you that God has a place of fulfillment for you that is much, much greater than anything the world can ever offer. Now, the order of creation is one very significant reason why God has ordained male headship. But did you notice at the very end of verse 10, it's almost a throwaway line, and then he says, and because of the angels. And you say, what does the baseball team have to do with that? I don't get that one bit. Well, obviously, he's not talking about the angels, uh, the baseball team. But a third reason God has established male headship in the church is because of the presence of angels in corporate worship. Do you understand that right now angels are present at this assembly of Christians? Anytime Christians gather together for worship, angels are present and they're looking at us. They're looking at our conduct. They're looking at how we order things. They look at how we're functioning together. And you say, you know what? I would have dressed a little nicer if I would have known the names of people in the night. But friends, you get the idea here? The idea is that God is teaching the angels through us, and he has us under observation by angelic beings. And therefore, it is important. Friends, the only question the church uh, needs to be concerned with is not only... Does it work or does it feel good to us? What if we thought, well, this works, this feels great. But what if we are showing exactly the wrong thing to the onlooking angels that God wants us to teach? Then we're failures. God has something greater for us to do in what we're doing than just please ourselves or be successful. He has eternal lessons to display to angelic beings through what he does in the church. So there's two great reasons because we are under the observation of angelic beings and because of God's order of authority in creation. Now, can I point something out here? 
that it is significant that none of these reasons are culture-dependent? Are angels any more present in the first century church in Corinth than they are here? Was Adam made any earlier than Eve for the first century in Corinth than now? No. Friends, the order and the manner of creation and the presence of angels do not depend on culture. We cannot say Paul said this just because of the thinking of the Corinthian culture or the place of woman in that culture. The principles are eternal, but the outworking of the principles may differ from culture to culture. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Well, no, maybe I just mention it right now. We've been talking a lot about head coverings and veils. And I'm sorry, I just don't see many women here with head coverings on. But let's face it, it doesn't mean anything in our culture. In our culture, it doesn't mean anything for a woman to wear a head covering, except maybe she likes to wear stylish hats. Doesn't mean anything. Now, you know what it means when a man wears a head covering all the time? It means he's going bald and he wants to hide it. <laughs> but for a woman to wear a head covering, it's no declaration that she's under authority. But... A woman needs to display in her spirit or in her manner or in whatever that she is under male headship in the two spheres where God has ordained it, in the home and in the church. And if it were culturally relevant to wear a head covering, then by golly, you should wear one. But if it isn't culturally relevant, then it doesn't matter. Now in this, we see that God has established a clear chain of authority in both the home and in the church. And in those spheres, God has ordained that men are the head. That is, that they have the place of authority and responsibility. Now, um, again, I want to make very plain here that God does not mean that every woman in the church is under the authority of every man in the church. No, no, no. Instead, it means that those who lead the church, the pastors and the ruling elders, must be men, and women must respect their authority. And we can't talk about this whole subject without exposing what must be the greatest crime at all, and that's the failure of men to lead in the home and in the church, and to lead in the way that Jesus would lead. Hasn't this been a chief cause of the rejection of male authority? And it's inexcusable for men to refuse to lead the way God has called them. Men, I'm not calling upon you to be the head in your home. I'm telling you, you are. And either you're a good head of your home or you're a bad head of your home. But God in heaven does not look down in your home and see your wife as being responsible. Friends, you're responsible. The guilt is on your head if your home isn't being run right before the Lord. Because God has ordained that you are the head of the home. Well, my wife won't let me lead. Well, you better just pray and ask that God gives you the direction to lead the way he wants you to lead, and you just go forth and do it lovingly in the name of Jesus, according to his nature of self-sacrifice and, and that kind of godly example. But friends, I'm, there's no call for men to be the head of the home. It's a fact. You've got to deal with it. Now again, some feel that this recognition and submission to authority is an unbearable burden to bear. That it means I have to say that I'm inferior. I have to say that I'm nothing. And I have to recognize this other person is being superior. That's what you want me to say, isn't it, Pastor? No, not at all. Friends, please remember inferiority or superiority has nothing to do with it. Remember the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. They are completely equal in their being but they have different roles when it comes to authority. 
Now again, friends, some may say that the church isn't going to work well or isn't going to be popular unless we get along with the times and put women into positions of spiritual and doctrinal authority in the church. And you know what? If we're doing a popularity contest or a poll across society, maybe that's true. But how can such a church say that they're being led by the Spirit of God? See, my friends, the issues of headship and submission should be seen in their broader context. Friends, this is not just some battle between men and women for control of the home or control of the church. It's a struggle with the issue of authority in general. Please recognize that in our culture since the 1960s, there's been a massive change in the way that we see and accept authority. Citizens do not have the same respect for government's authority. Students do not have the same respect for a teacher's authority. Women do not have the same respect for men's authority. Children do not have the same respect for parents' authority. Employees do not have the same respect for an employer's authority. People do not have the same respect for the police's authority. And Christians no longer have the same respect for the church's authority. This is not some one isolated issue between men and women. It's indicative of our culture at large. And when you take a look at all those changes, ask yourself, have the changes been good? Are we safer? Are we more confident in our culture? Has television and other attainment gotten better or worse? Friends, our society is in and it's rushing towards complete anarchy to the time where nobody's authority is accepted. And the only thing that matters is what I want to do. Well, friends, it's fair to describe our, moral present, our present moral state as one of anarchy. There is no moral authority in our culture. When it comes down to morality, the only thing that matters is what somebody wants to do. Friends, you've got to see the broader attack of authority as a direct satanic attack on society and millions of individual lives. The devil is accomplishing this with the corruption of authority and with the rejection of authority. Well, in verses 11 and 12, he continues on with the idea. He says, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as the woman was from the man, even so the man is also through the woman, but all things are from God. Now, nevertheless, is a very important word in verse 11. Paul has very strongly put forth the case for male headship. Wouldn't we agree? But basically, what he's saying is, listen, understanding all that, or despite all that, on top of all that Paul has said about male headship in the church, it would be wrong to consider headship as the only dynamic at work between men and women in the church. I mean, it's not like the whole dynamic in the relationship between men and women in the church is me, head, you, submit. That defines it all right there. No. Paul says, listen, man, you are not independent of the woman, and woman, you're not independent of the man. Men and women need each other. You know what this is saying to the men? It's saying to the men, there is no place for you lording it over the women. There's no place for that at all. There's an essential partnership of men and women. Neither man or woman can live without the other. And so Paul has recognized the order of creation, but he also says, listen, man comes through woman. There's a critical interdependence which must be recognized within the framework of male headship in the church and in the home. 
So friends, the man or the men who rule in the church or in the home without love, without recognizing the important place God has given women, they are not doing God's will. You've got to rule, man, but you've got to rule with love, realizing that God has made that woman an essential partner, not a servant or a slave to you. Alan Redpath says, A man who can only rule by stamping his foot had better remain single. But a man who knows how to govern his house by the love of the Lord through sacrificial submission to the Lord is the man who is going to make a perfect husband. The woman who cannot submit to an authority like that had better remain single. G. Campbell Morgan recalls a story of an older Christian woman who had never married. And uh, somebody went up, and she's such a godly woman. You know, people won't. Why did she never get married? You know what she said? She said, I never met a man who could master me. And Campbell Morgan said she had the right idea. She was right in never getting married. He said, praise the Lord. It would have been inappropriate for her to get married and have this huge struggle in her life and her marriage with who's going to run the home. We'll wrap it up here for tonight in verses 13 through 16. He says, judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Paul begins in verse 13 by saying, listen, judge for yourselves. You guys should know this by common sense. This shouldn't take some great spiritual revelation. He says, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now again, I think Paul here is focusing his remarks towards Christians who came from a Jewish background. For Christians who came from a Jewish background, in the Jewish context, it would have been unthinkable for a woman to pray with their head uncovered. Men didn't even pray with their head uncovered, much less a woman. So he's saying, listen, I mean, you just know it's just not done. It's just inappropriate. But then he goes on to say, does not even nature itself teach that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. Paul is saying, look, if you just look at nature, you see that God has given women a natural head covering. Their heads aren't supposed to be covered because God has given them more hair. And they wear their hair longer. Nature itself teaches this. Now, in both Jewish and Greek culture at that time, short hair was common for men. Therefore, it was a dishonor for a man to wear long hair because it was considered feminine. Now, boy, we can get into a huge debate with this, right? And there's been some great, uh, I don't mean to demean anything, but there's been some great Baptist sermons preached on this passage saying how those filthy hippies ought to go out and get their stinking hair cut. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, the whole idea here, though, is uh, you get into the debate of, well, you know, what's long and long hair and this or that. But friends, look, let's just agree on one point that's very simple. For as long as we have known, women have generally worn their hair longer than men. Right? Has there ever been a time when that's not true? Has there ever been a time when across the culture, really short hair was in for women and really long hair was in for men? I mean, even when there's been those trends in fashion, most people haven't adopted them, there's never been a time when, generally speaking, women have worn their hair shorter than men. No matter how long men have generally worn their hair, women have always worn it longer. 
Now, based on this verse, many people have thought that it's a sin for a man to wear long hair, or at least hair that's considered long by the culture. But long hair in itself cannot be a sin. Do you know why? I could demonstrate why from Acts chapter 18, verse 18, where Paul took a vow of a Nazarite and grew his hair really long and then cut it off and gave that cut off hair as a sacrifice to the Lord. But the fact that Paul grew his hair long, as you would do in the vow of a Nazarite, proved that there was nothing inherently sinful in it. The vow wouldn't have meant anything if long hair was normal. It was normal to keep your hair shorter in that culture. But the fact that Paul did it shows that it was not sin. Now, I think what he's pointing at here is just this phenomenon that, generally speaking, women have their hair longer than men, and this is nature's covering, and they should understand this. But let's understand this as well. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, and other passages teach a very important truth, that it is wrong for a man to take the appearance of a woman. Longer hair on a man is not necessarily indication of this, right? But if a man is growing his hair long, and taking the appearance of a woman. In that sense, that that's what he wants to do, to feminize his appearance. That's wrong. The Bible says man should dress like a man, and a woman should dress like a woman in that sense, and not try to uh, cross those, those uh, gender distinctions. So, you know, longer hair on a man isn't necessarily indication of that. I think it's silly for Christians to go on some hair-cutting crusade to get those long hairs to cut their hair. Good heavens. It's a lot more, uh, be a lot more fruitful if more preachers were concerned about the length of their sermons instead of the length of people's hair. <laughs> so anyway, Paul says here at the end of verse 15 that her hair is given to her for a covering. It's nature's veil. It's nature's head covering. And it just proves the point that women have a need to be under authority. Nature itself has supplied them with a covering. He wraps it up as what we're going to wrap up this evening, verse 16. He says, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom. You know, in this appeal to apostolic authority, Paul is telling the Corinthian Christians uh, not to be contentious. Now listen, I mean, basically he's saying, don't, don't whine about this. Don't go on and moan and groan about this. This is how it's to be in the churches of God. These are the customs we've adopted. So don't go complaining about this. Now, friends, we could talk all day long about the place of uh, men and women in the church, and I think it's an important topic. It's touching on, on uh, some very important issues in our culture today. But you know, there's never going to be a man who's worthy to be a head in the church or the home. There's never going to be a woman who is a worthy uh, helper or supporter of a man in the church or a home if we're not all submitted to Jesus Christ. Isn't that the key? To submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. Now, when we submit to Jesus, it doesn't override our other headship relationships. If I'm an employee, I don't have to say to my boss, I don't have to submit to you, I just submit to Jesus. <laughs> because Jesus has told me to submit to my boss. And Jesus has told us in what relationships headship is important inappropriate. And we can't do any of that unless we're submitted to Jesus. So right now, we're going to have a time of worship. And uh, as much as anything in this time of worship, why don't you just think about submitting yourself to Jesus Christ? 
to raising that white flag of surrender in your life and stop battling against him. And uh, if you have problems responding as the Lord would have you in those appropriate headship relationships in your life, then why don't you talk to the Lord about it?